ever since I've been in Al-Anon, if you want to know who the alcoholics are, just look out across and see the ones that's smiling and happy. And they're the alcoholics. And I think this is probably true when we first come into this program. But if we're lucky and are introduced to this Al-Anon program, somewhere along the way we learn to laugh too. And I think this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me that I learned to laugh again. This next speaker we have here today is a very good friend of mine. He's meant a great deal to me and to my wife. I first met Bob about a year ago. And up until this time, I'd never heard a man, well, I'd never heard of a man Al-Anon. And I was really glad to see this guy. <laughs> I never will forget the first night I walked into our home and my wife was on the phone calling AA. And just as I walked in the door, I heard her say, there's no women in AA here. And the very first thought that entered my mind was, my God, I knew it. I've got the only one in the world. <laughs> but I found out there's a few more scattered around the last year or so. Bob is a member of the Travis Al-Anon group in Houston. He's been a member of Al-Anon for some ten years. Most of you have read some of his stories in the Intergroup Newsweek letter. They're tremendous. So at this time, I'd like to, oh, before I forget it, I'd like to ask the committee that's responsible for Bob and Jimmy to stand up. And at this time, I'd like to give you Bob E. from Houston. My name is better known as Bobby Boy Alanon. <laughs> it's a privilege to be here today, and I thank the committee for inviting me. But I would like to set something straight that has been mentioned before. I'd like to do it before I go any further. And that is as a result of something that happened right after I got registered. Now, you old-time convention goers know that the first thing you do after you get your room is you go get registered. The second thing you do is find out where the restroom is, the nearest restroom. Well, I had taken care of number one, and I approached uh, an old gent out in the hall there with number two. And I said, hi, friend. Uh, my name is Bob E. I'm from Houston, and I'm an al I'm looking for the you-know-what. And he says, I understand your problem. It's right down the hall to the right. Now, if you go down the hall out here to the right, you know the first door that you come to says ladies on it. <laughs> and I want to set it straight that I am a boy, Alan. <laughs> For those of you that are alcoholics in the room, I don't know what I can say to you that can be of any great help to you. 
I think that uh, very much like my nearsighted friend out in the hall, I don't know what I could tell you to keep you sober. Because for a long, long time, good number of years, I tried this for, I tried to work this with my, with my wife to help her sober up. And it didn't work. But I'm sure, too, that many of you here that are alcoholics have had some well-meaning non-alcoholic try to help you. Bless their hearts, they didn't know what kind of a job they had cut out for themselves. If there had been any possible way that they could have helped you, I'm sure they would have done it. But they didn't know their limitations, so please forgive them. We're told that alcoholism is a threefold illness, physical, mental, and spiritual. The fact that the total person is ill explains why medical science, psychiatry, and the clergy have not met with the success that they would like to in aiding folks with this illness. Now, should we consider the fact that each of these persons in these professions are trained, they have gone to school for a good number of years, and they together have been responsible for less than 3% of the recovery of alcoholics, then I think the family of the alcoholic can be excused, too, for not knowing how to help the ones that they love most. Because, you see, we have had no professional training at all in most cases. But just as the alcoholic needs understanding in his struggle for sobriety, so does his family. There are two sides to the ledger, and as I think out loud today, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to make a rebuttal to all the AA talks I've ever heard. But I'd like to show you that people like me, like Jimmy and Frank, and many of the others of you just sitting out there, do get ill sometimes as a result of living with an alcoholic. And we need this program so that we too can recover like our alcoholic mates. So as I stand here this afternoon, I consider myself a recovering Al-Anon, trying only to increase my value as a human being. And I don't know of a better place to do it. It's difficult to pinpoint the time in our lives when alcohol was much of a problem, because at one time we considered alcohol a part of our entertainment, and a part of our pleasure. But surely one day it did change from being a pleasure to being something of a nuisance. And those of us that have lived with this thing progressively over the years knows how it progresses from being a problem to one of sheer anguish. But it does happen just that way. The days before our participation in the AA and the Al-Anon program are still very vivid in my mind. 
I can remember the anxieties and the frustrations, the silence and the smell of an illness that engulfed us both. The insidious disease of alcoholism was threatening both of our lives. Now, the wife or a husband of an alcoholic shares in a real way the alcoholic's guilt. A wife or a husband tends to believe that he or she bears some sort of a guilt and are some way responsible for alcoholic's behavior. And no one can live with shame, tensions, guilt, and fear, and anxiety for any great length of time without becoming affected to a greater or lesser degree. And just as the alcoholic needs understanding, guidance, and sympathy if he is to attain sobriety, so does the wife or a husband of an alcoholic. They, too, are in need of understanding, guidance, and sympathy. So I truly believe that the expression family disease is a very appropriate one. I'm not prepared to say today that all alcoholics are neurotics. I don't know. I don't have initials after my name, so I'm not qualified. But I think that I would defend the thesis that people that live with alcoholics for any great length of time do a lot of neurotic thinking. We know that for whatever its nature, alcoholism makes people sick. And I'm sure that people that live with alcoholics are just as sick. We endure adverse circumstances for great length of periods, great lengthy periods, and we really don't know why. Now, this sounds like I'm building a federal case up against the alcoholic, and I don't want it to be that way at all, because I'm not. Because I can remember back in World War II as a combat infantryman, it often became my job to take guys to the rear who had succumbed to the pressure of being in combat, of expecting the impact of a bullet, of not liking where they were, of being away from home, and being told 24 hours a day how they should live their lives. And one day they crack up and we take them to the rear. We called it battle fatigue in World War II. And yet, I have to examine this just a little bit. What caused this person to break down like they did? Was it the war? Well, we question this a little bit because there were uh, thousands and thousands of young men that didn't have this happen to them. So maybe we could agonize over the idea that perhaps this is some weakness they had carried with them from an early age. Now, was my illness caused by an alcoholic wife, or was it inherent or developed weaknesses that I'd carried with me from an early age? I think I know the answer today, and I think many of you folks know the answer, too. But I was having some terrible reactions to have this aggravation of alcoholism come up in my home. 
All these things that were happening to me, I laid alternately to a 95-pound wife and then to a fifth of vodka. And I couldn't understand all these things that were happening. Was this something that God was visiting on me as a whimsy of some sort? Was this some sort of a punishment? Or was it plain human nature? I only felt one thing, and that this why was fully justified in doing and saying all the silly things that I did. I had not learned that these things that I suffered from at that moment were things that I had carried from an early age, and at this time they were severely aggravated. There was self-pity of thinking that it was enough just to be married to a woman and all of her capricious ways, but to have a woman that drank excessively, this was too much to expect from any man. How could a righteous God inflict this suffering? Well, I didn't know, and I was drawing further and further away from this higher power. Isn't it strange how we blame onto God everything we don't understand? And there was the frustration, too. I was trying like mad to keep my wife sober, not knowing the kind of job I'd cut out for myself, affording the stuff down the sink until the garbage disposal acts erratic, of finding it, hiding it, and then have her cry, I need that drink. And me and my ignorance, not knowing that that drink was as important to her as the next breath. But I would give it to her, watch her drink it, pass out, and I'd put her to bed. And then I'd sit down and have a crying jag for myself. Because you see, my friends, I hadn't heard of step one yet. And then the anger that I experienced, venting all my anger and frustrations and resentments, these things that I couldn't do at home effectively, I did on the way to work or at the office. And I worked my men unmercifully of giving them assignments and standing over their shoulder to see that they got it done. So you can see that I was as unpopular at the office as I was at home. My next best whipping boy was my Zippo lighter. Something would be said that it would arouse my anger. I would take out my lighter and light a cigarette, and about the first drag I took, the full impact of what was said hit me, and I would crash my lighter to the floor in a tantrum. And the little friendly neighborhood bootlegger that we had in that state at that time, we had prohibition. He drove a Cadillac and wore alligator shoes when he wasn't delivering stuff to my house, and I resented this. (laughs) Not that a man is all bad that drives a Cadillac and wears alligator shoes, but since I was helping buy, buy his, I did well for sneakers and roller skates, you know. And I would threaten to shoot him. And this Sam would disappear and there would be another one show up. These threats I also carried to my wife. But you know, threats don't work there. Not at this stage of the game. 
I know we have heard the statement repeatedly, and I've heard it in this meeting, that alcoholics are the loneliest people in the world. And I'm not going to argue that point, because I don't know of a yardstick to measure loneliness by. But I do know that my brand of loneliness was excruciating, of no longer having someone to talk to, no one to longer, no longer share my inner thoughts with. And I withdrew, and I became silent. And along with this silence, I had this imposed deafness that blotted out all this unpleasantness. And in this unreal world, I remained for a long season where sounds were strangely discordant, that food was dry and tasteless, and the whole world had gone sour. And I can still remember, and I don't ever want to forget, what I was at that time. And I remember this with no bitterness whatsoever, and I mean this sincerely. But I was paralyzed by fear, fearing death and not really caring, closing my eyes and hoping for oblivion, but still at the same time hoping for a miracle and not knowing how it was going to happen, of not knowing what would be happening in the next hour or the next day. Would it be signing the commitment papers and my stomach would draw up and now it's in sake. No, not Van. Or would it be helping with the death certificate? And I'd say, oh God, please don't let her die. Help us. And it was into this major premise of illusion and ignorance, mortal fear, that brought me to my knees. Sometimes I think I can really understand why Many of us split up in divorce. I don't know rightly why this didn't happen to us. Except there was always a vision in my mind of a young, beautiful, buoyant girl. And that's what I was, thought I was trying to salvage out of this mess that threatened our very lives. Mm-hmm. I can see now there exists a peculiar bond between people like us and I don't know of any other relation quite like it amongst human beings. But one day I was struck by with the greatest motivating force that a person could experience, at least for me. I can, I can still see Van tottering down the hall, holding on to first one wall and then the other, and saying, I need help. Will you please call AA? A clean breeze swept through the room and I wept. Because at last I was going to get to use a number that I had memorized for many, many months. And without knowing it, I made my first 12-step call. Call AA? Sure, I'll call AA. We were raising little dogs at that time and they raced me to the telephone. They barked and wagged their tails like they understood. 
as if God had patted them on the head too. And they loved it. The worst thing that could happen to us didn't happen at that time, and I'm very grateful. But I can't help being reminded that it has happened to others. Alcoholism is the world's third greatest killer, and it came very close to us. But we know that as alcoholism is a progressive illness, that recovery is a progressive delight, and we enjoy it today in this room. Van's sponsor came out to the house after that call, and I met him across the lawn. When I heard the car drive in, I knew there could be nobody else because no one had driven up in that driveway except us for many, many months. And he came in and he says, I'm Judge Lest, and I'm an alcoholic. I understand you have a problem at your house. And I says, yes, won't you come in? And we visited a long time. I think that the judge and I did most of the talking, and my talking consisted of questions. But this man told his incredible story of how low he had sunk and yet came back to serve a good number of years on the bench and how he shared AA meetings with people that he had one time sentenced. But finally he says, you know, it looks like Van is going to AA now. I think you ought to try Al-Anon. And there was a pause there while I did a mental quick inventory on of our medicine cabinet, and we had aspirin, I remember, but there was no Al-Anon in there. <laughs> this was ten years ago, the first time I had heard the word, a word that is now used for an exi- uh, uh, for an organization that has been in existence nearly as long as Alcoholics Anonymous. But I was happy to learn that this was something that didn't work with pills or chemistry. It worked by by using and living 12 suggested steps. So I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. Judge made the overstatement of the year. He says there's a lot of women down there. So I said, all right. (laughs) I was pretty shy then. And uh, I said, I'll go early. Now, this way I can get used to them coming in one at a time. (laughs) And there was all this thought in the back of my mind, too. If I got there late and walked into a whole room of women at one time, it would be like getting in the powder room by mistake, and I'd get excited and run into the wall and break my glasses. And I didn't want that to happen. But these wonderful gals, how wonderful they were. How wonderful it was to talk to a woman for a change that made sense. This was quite an experience. But these gals that I had been afraid of were the ones that helped me bridge the gap between a life of hell, a life of cloud nine, and back to reality again. You know, when we get to thinking about making a choice of our best friend, I don't think we would want one that had it pretty easy most of their lives. 
we would want one that had suffered and made some use of that suffering. Because in no other way are gentleness, tact, and genuine sympathy ever learned very well. They learn it through problems. And here were these gals that had dark pages in their lives, wounds that still smarted a bit, and yet they wanted to share with me what had been important to them. And they gave me the facts. They were very unpalatable facts at that time, as I remembered. Your wife suffers from an incurable illness if she is an alcoholic, they told me. She will always be an alcoholic. They told me I didn't make her drink. They told me that I couldn't keep her sober. I couldn't sober her up, or I couldn't keep her sober. And they tried to impress me on me that I was powerless over alcohol, and that I was as sick as my wife, and I resented this because not yet had I managed enough honesty to realize that I even had a problem. But they told me about the ethics that was rather convincing, too. They said, now here is a person that is a will creature, and that person can think anything they want, and they can do most anything they want, and God doesn't step in the way. He's a loving father that stands back and lets us make our own mistakes. And you are like that person, too. You have those same privileges. But then they came back with a clincher. How much greater than God do you think you are that you have a right to run this person's life? And they had another clincher that I can remember. They said, how long have you had this problem at your house? And I said, 15 years. They said, well, how long have you been trying to do something about it? The answer was the same, 15 years. And then they said, well, Bob, how successful have you been? Don't you think it's time to give up? And then they told me about coming to the meetings. He says, now, if you're coming to this meeting with the idea that you're going to sober your wife up and keep her that way, you might as well go on home right now. Don't even stay for the meeting, because you're wasting your time and you're wasting our time. We have a program down here that we learn to live by that helps us, perhaps to better understand our, uh, our mates. They said something else that impressed me, too. It says, you're going to come across a myth as long as you're around this program, that nobody can understand an alcoholic but another alcoholic. He says, maybe you shouldn't pay too much attention to that. Our problem here is that we don't understand two things very well, and that's alcoholism and ourselves. This behavior you see in this loved one, call it alcoholism, is not your mate, is not your problem. But you're going to learn how to improve yourself if you're going to help this person 
be anything. Not by running their life, but by improving your life. And don't come with the idea down here that we are a sounding board only for your troubles. We want to hear your troubles because we want to help you. But a good martyr, a good martyr has to have an audience. And we don't want you, we don't want you using us that way. We don't want you to be a martyr. So they gave me a lot to go on. Something else they talked to me about says, surely you've thought about divorce. And I said, yes, I have, time and time again. I had heard, I had heard this advice from my mother, my father, from her mother, her father, get a divorce. So I had to admit that I had thought about this. But they came back with something else that uh, kind of floored me. He says, well, uh, think a long time about it because the chances are if you divorce her, you're going to go out and marry another alcoholic. This is the way it works out. <laughs> and the first thought that occurred to me was, how could anybody be so damn wretched, you know? But I got to thinking, here I had this wife for a good about 19 years now. And during this time, I've bought uh, two major operations, three minors. I've paid for all the furniture down to the dentist's office and part of those at the doctor's office. And I should marry again, get another woman who doesn't have any warranty on her parts either, you know. <laughs> and knowing my luck, what I would be ending up with would be, you know, a brand new wife with an old liver condition. I couldn't see that. <laughs> But for so long, I've been looking for a satisfying way to live, that the experience of finally finding it was just a little overwhelming. It's difficult to describe the restlessness I felt. This triumph of discovery that impels us to go out and uh, seek our less enlightened fellows, you know, and pour out this stuff and trying to help them sober up the city. But uh, we soon, in this welling up, took over the God franchise of North Tulsa and immediately tried to sober all these people up. We had sick guests in our house in various stages of sobriety, seemed like for several months. I was going to the store and buying the Cairo syrup and the honey. And the grocery boy that carried the things out to the car, uh, he knew that we didn't eat all this, but he was assuming that we had company. And his, his remark was, you, you sure got a bunch of kooky company over here out there. <laughs> but I was anxious, and I wanted to help. I could see something in these happy faces that I wanted. And I wanted to see it in other faces. I wanted to see other faces change. And Van would say, Hun, you better get the bedpan. I think Sam's going to be sick again. And I'd haul the puke and make the coffee and buy the cookies and take time out occasionally to shine my halo. We'd go, to... We'd go down to the club on a no-meeting night and gather up a carload of people. And maybe somebody else would have a car. And we'd bring out two carloads of people bring them out to our house and have a little impromptu meetings. And I'd make the coffee and get out the big book, and we'd pass it around. When it came my turn, I read my part of uh, Chapter 5. I think I memorized Chapter 5 before I 
even knew what the program was about, really. And I'd expound right along with the other expounders, and I'd seek out the old-timers, you know, the winners. I wanted what they have. And I'd talk this program, and I'd go up, and I'd shake hands, and they'd shake hands back to them. You know, your hands would ache. It still hurt in cold weather. But I wanted to know how this thing worked. But occasionally someone would come up and say, well, Bob, how long have you been dry now? And then I would have to admit that I was the one that was the Al-Anon, that my wife was the alcoholic, and they would drop me like a hot potato. (laughs) And bring out a terrible resentment in me and thanking her for the coffee I'd made and the cookies that I'd bought. I even found out later that some rummy, gin rummy players down at the club had side bets as to whether I was going to make this program or not. <laughs> they just knew that I couldn't stay sober too long the way I was going. Which simply goes, you, you can't tell them if you can't smell them. But I was happy in those days, about as happy as a mouse in a cookie jar. And I was able to face friends, old friends again. We were getting our relatives back. We lost relatives too, as well as friends. And just kept hoping some powerful problem would come along, that we could take these 12 steps and these slogans and work them. This easy does it. There's 24 hours at a time and so on. And they would ask me to talk. My first Al-Anon talk says, you only have to talk five minutes. And we'd be in two weeks. Okay, that two weeks I sweated over ten different talks that I wrote and tore up, edited, and got up there finally. The night came. And I held on to the podium very, very hard because I didn't want them to see my shaking hands. And I held my knees closely together because they were shaking. I had heard of people talking about shaking knees. I experienced this. And I told them my little story. And then they asked me again and again, and the fright became less and less, and talking became easier and easier. And I would go any place at the drop of the hat to talk to anybody about alcoholism, Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon, because I had all the answers. And you've heard the expression, diarrhea of words and constipation of thought, because that was what it amounted to. <laughs> this was the gospel according to Bob. How wonderful it would be if we could hold on to this depth of sensation forever. But we don't. The first time I let go of cloud nine to pat myself on the back, I fell back. I pressed the retro rocket button by mistake, and I descended into the old atmosphere, worry, resentment. The merry-go-round had stopped. The music had run down. Sam had made his first talk. He told these people how wonderful Bob and Van had been and how they sobered him up and kept him out at his our house for weeks. And after the meeting, he promptly took drunk. So I was back to the doldrums again, fussing with Van for not being as speedy as I thought she'd be. And I would tell people jokingly, but still underneath, meaning it, that this woman took two hours to dress for a come-as-you-are party because I felt that she was that slow. But I kept on trying, trying to see what this message was that made the difference in these people's lives. And I went back to the, the sages. I went back to Judge. I said, Judge, what are we doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? He says, Bob, please remember this. 
that sometimes the length that we go to carry this message is also an indication of our failure to grasp the program. These people can detect phonies, he said, and they can tell it in your handshake. They can tell it in this smile that you muster. And they want to know the genuine article. And one day they'll know it simply by just shaking your hand. They know that they will know that you have this this program. But you keep right on trying, he said, because no act of good is ever totally lost. It remains as an eternal quality. That it might be whole, sometimes seem wholly thwarted, but never annulled. And that these acts are eternally potent in proportion to the divinity of their motivation. And here he was suggesting the spiritual side of the program, and I still felt rebellion at this notion. He told me that if I was going to live for a, a happy life, that I was going to have to get rid of character defects, and I was also going to have to realize that getting rid of character defects would leave a void if they weren't filled with something, and that the only thing that I could fill them with were the good acts toward other people. But he gave me this one little caution, or he told me a little bit ahead of time. He says that one day you are going to feel this, and it's going to be real strong. I don't know how it's going to come to you, but you're going to feel it real strong, and it's going to make a big difference all the way down the line. But I pondered over these things. I could see that the AA program was a tremendous program. I could see that people were changing, that they were becoming different people, even those that I had met in my short length of time were becoming different people. But they say they weren't becoming perfect. And they told me that I shouldn't worry about becoming perfect. But they says in lies this program something else that is perfect, and that is a perfect purpose to love and carry this message to these other people. So finally it came to me that I could see what this great program was, how important it was, how these marvelous transformations of character were being executed, how they were being made. And to me it was like a little illustration I like to use of a man who is at a party. And over on the far wall he sees a piece of canvas hanging there. And for the amusement of himself and that of his friends, he goes over and sketches in a bright little picture. And then stepping back to judge his handiwork, discovers that he's placed his little bit of nonsense on the corner of a huge picture so big and so beautiful that he hardly realized it was there at all. Then I could see what I had to go at. I had to grow. If our Creator, our creator had wanted us to be perfect, I'm sure that he could have arranged it so. But we have evolved from a primeval ooze to this stage in history. 
and I'm sure that he's proud that we have come this far. But we have to grow, and it isn't a magic thing, and it takes time. So I had to judge this program for what it had to offer me from a different standpoint. And I would have to overcome many false starts. But in looking back now, I can see what happened to me. I had oversimplified the program. First, by living and practicing the slogans instead of the 12 steps. Easy does it, one day at a time, and so on. These I like to use for an acute moment. But for a life of purpose, I can see them as something that's going to help me only for a short time, only temporary. So I had to get into the steps, and I had to live them. But the problem was at that time, yes, I, knew, I could say the steps. I had to memorize. You could say, Bob, what's step six? And I could spout it off to you. What's step seven? What's step nine? And, boy, I go through this three and four times a day, and this is amounts to gargling. Gargling the steps, and you know as well as I do that there are the therapeutic value of gargling versus internal medicine. It doesn't quite get the job done. I tried another false start of reading all the books that I could get a hold of, especially those on abnormal psychology, figuring that surely I could find something in there that would be of help to me. And there were many other false starts that sometimes worked for a little bit, but they weren't lasting. I don't know, maybe I should have gone to a psychiatrist. But I had just enough sanity left that I had no desire to be a, be a clinical curiosity, especially if I had the bill for it, because pay the bill for it, because these people said these 12 steps would work. But I learned, too, that trying to approach this program intellectually doesn't quite get it done. I had missed the point in a hundred of AA talks and Al-Anon talks and even sermons by ministers when they talked about spirituality. I missed the cue that the exclusive appeal to the intellectual mind of man is barren and is disappointing, that it's only when appeal is made to the spiritual nature that lives within each one of us that we can uh, attain these transformations of character. I would go to a meeting and I'd come home feeling real good and I pondered this and I wondered why it was happening because it seems like times I would be walking inches off the ground. The car would hardly hit a bump all the way home. And I felt, well, something is coming to me but I haven't figured it out yet because I had been estranged from this higher power for a good long time. But one day it flashed to me in a period of meditation, and there was this old admonition to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. I like to work with words, and I like to work with phrases, but I had to work with this phrase sometime before I could find the real meaning in it. I could consider it on a physical basis and be reminded of self-gratification. I could consider it on uh, a mental basis and maybe sympathy and pity would, involve, would evolve. Or I could consider it on a high moral basis 
and maybe I get the feeling of brotherhood. But to what I consider the greatest wisdom in all humanity is to have that ability and that wisdom to treat another human being as we would expect our higher power to treat them. Then this made a little different. This made it different. Well, this was a real spiritual experience to have this flash come to me like that. Because then I could see, well, Bob, look, tonight you have been with over a half a hundred people for about an hour and a half, and each one of those people have been trying to treat you as they thought their higher power would treat you. Well, this has made a difference ever since to every meeting that I have ever, ever attended. I feel it at this moment, and I think that most of you feel it out there. I feel it so strong over here, it kind of wells up. That when we have a group of people in a room like this, and all feeling like they would like to be of service, to love the human being sitting next to them, there is a spiritual charge that invades the room, and it fills the minds and the bodies of each of us. And we walk out of here feeling good, because we have had the benefit of this new and pure energy. You know, often we talk about the miracles in this program. I have heard one man in particular from Oklahoma City, and I can remember him t his telling uh, of his story, how he had degenerated from the point of being a, a boy genius in a large railroad company to the point where he was living in a packing case and living off of stale vegetables. And they told his remarkable story his, about his recovery and how finally he started a drying out house. As far as I know, perhaps not at the same dress, address, but it still exists in Oklahoma City. And we call this a miracle. And I can think of the th other thrills, the thrill of going to an Al-Anon meeting and I can remember looking across the room and seeing this smiling woman and remember that just a few weeks previous to that she had attended her first Al-Anon meeting, crying and sobbing uncontrollably and not being able to answer our questions as to what, is, what was wrong. Eventually it came her time to give her little talk like it does to all of us. And she got up and she says, My name is Helen and I am the happy wife of a still-practicing alcoholic. And she told her story, how it had been her plan previous to that first meeting to take the life of her three children and commit suicide. And her children were there that night. What a waste of human life this would have been. And then I can think of another thrill, the thrill of being an Alateen sponsor, and I hope that someday that all of you will have this experience. To see a program that was originally intended to keep an alcoholic sober being used by children to make something different of their lives. I can remember this boy, 17 years old, coming to his first meeting, long unloved and without direction, and how he sat on the back of the overstuffed furniture with his feet on the cushions. And he says, okay, so my old man's an alcoholic, so what? 
a few weeks later, he told his story, Jimmy. He told about his relation with his father, how he hated him. And because of this hate, he was a fugitive from the switchblade set, a hubcap stealer, and a chronic truant. And he told what happened to change that. And he told about his relation with his higher power. And he says, guys and gals, I want to tell you, I got two fathers tonight. I have breakfast with one in the morning. And the other one, I think, at night, for the father that I had breakfast with. So, my AA friends, you haven't cornered the market on miracles by no means. Because any time, any place in this world, this program is used, these miracles happen. And we thank God for it. This is not a private program. That which our founders brought to establish in this world is for all. It's for, the, it's for all races. It's for the free. It's for the bond. Male or female. Even children. And we are free to carry this message of love and live this wonderful life. It's a thrill that happens every time I see a youngster get up and tell his story. What happened and what it is now. We love one another. As much as we would like to tell the world about this program and our enthusiasm, I'm sure we never get all the way across because there are always those that do not have the capacity of reception to receive it as we would like for them to. But this program is not to be judged by its success or failure to transform those that reject it. We do know that if it failed where it was accepted, there might be grounds for complaint. But it does not change. I mean, it does not so fail. It is a revelation of a true way of living. And it is this type of living, as you well, well attest, which crowds time into a very small capsule. It passes very, very fast. This program is also a technique of thinking. But I, would lie, I wouldn't like for us to think that AA and Al-Anon are particularly blessed because we are now grasping something that was intended to be, knowing, to be known all of our lives. If we do, we're going to make that persistently mischief-making error that has happened to many groups of people when we become obsessed with a not-too-unique delusion that we are a chosen people. Yes, we have something good. We, we have it only so long as we can share it with our friends and our loved ones. I think that alcoholics make a terrible mistake when they aren't urging their families to take part in this program through Al-Anon or Alateen. And I likewise think that non-alcoholics are, are making a mistake if they aren't getting behind their alcoholic relative or mate 100%. The road back to sobriety is a long, narrow, and tedious one sometimes, and we have to watch them fall off, and we have to watch them crawl back on. 
before it finally becomes something else. But then they too, one day, become the miracle we talk about. The miracle of you folks sitting in this room right here. You folks that have been reduced to that irreducible minimum, just short of death, and being brought back to learn the highest values in human existence. Today I'm grateful that God in his infinite wisdom allowed me to go through this with Van. Three months ago today, we talked about this problem, and we realized that we couldn't brighten that particular moment if we hadn't had the experience of all these difficulties in recovery through Aladon in AA. This was two days before her death. She died from another killer, cancer. To say that we pulled through our problems because of my superior love for her, it would it was be an untruth. I can only say that sobriety returned to our family and still found us loving one another. And we become more loving when our mind is sincerely spiritually motivated, when we desire to know God's will for us, for then there exists no negative influence. We increase our value as human beings because we can show our brother and sister how to feel at home in this world, that the world is not fundamentally evil. And then there is another thought I'd like for us to take in our hearts, and that is never will we walk more godlike. There's a time that we're calling on that new gal or guy that needs our help, that they're sick mentally, physically, and spiritually, who still needs and still sits in darkness, but needs our love. Thank you. Someone left their glasses at the restoration desk. They're in a black leather case, and I'll leave them laying up here on the table. This is my first attempt at being chairman at a convention, and I'd like to thank the committee here for asking me, and I'd like to thank you people for your tolerance. And to the people that told me how not to be nervous up here, it didn't work. If you'll stand, we'll be dismissed to large prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But I is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen.